The first scripture reading today is found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. You can follow along in the Pew Bible or on the screen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In the uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber play, Jesus Christ Superstar, the cast sings, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you? What is your sacrifice? Jesus Christ Superstar, do you think you're what they say you are? That is the question for you and me today. Who is this man, Jesus Christ? The Christian author Philip Yancey says in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, that the image of Jesus in the Bible is very different than the Jesus that we find in those old Hollywood films. Over the years, Hollywood has had a rather difficult time of how do you portray Jesus on the big screen. From an ever-friendly Mr. Rogers to an almost robotic-like Star Trek's uh, Mr. Spock to a radical hippie concerned with politics, peacemaking, and social justice issues. Growing up, I remember in our Sunday school curriculum, the pictures with the Bible stories, and it showed a very pale and pious looking man of somewhat dubious gender with a long white robe and long flowing hair like something out of a shampoo commercial. Well, the question still remains, who was this man really named Jesus of Nazareth? When we open up the Bible, we discover that to meet Jesus was a startling experience. People would rummage through the dictionary trying to come up with words to describe him. Everywhere he went, he moved in wonder, awe, and astonishment. And people wanted to know, who is this man? Well, friends, 2,000 years later, people still want to know. Can you imagine that? Not even 2,000 years has quenched our thirst about this enigmatic figure. In fact, someone has figured out that more has been written about Jesus Christ in the last 20 years than in the previous 20 centuries. From the musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, to Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, to the storms of controversy surrounding Dan Brown's best-selling book, The Da Vinci Code, to a current TV show, The Chosen, People are interested in wanting to know who is Jesus Christ. Well, in our first uh, scripture reading from Matthew's gospel, the setting in which Jesus asked the question was in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which means literally Caesarsville. Now, when I was in Israel several years ago, we went and visited Caesarea Philippi one day, and there was this cliff, and it had the God pan carved right in on the side of it. Back in Jesus' day, there was something like 14 pagan temples in the area where Jesus was. And so think about that. You have Jesus, this young, penniless king who doesn't have a place to lay his head. And he's standing in the shadows of all these really intimidating pagan temples. And he looks at his disciples and he asks them the question, who do the people say that I am? In other words, hey guys, You've got your ear to the ground. What's the word on the street about me? 
And they reply, well, some say you're a new and improved version of John the Baptist who was beheaded by King Herod but has come back to life. Others said, no, 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 you're, you're the reincarnation of Elijah the prophet who it was, was rumored did not die but was, went up to, into heaven in a, in a fiery chariot. I think what's interesting is that if Jesus were to appear in this room here today and ask the same question, well, who do the people of Quarryville say that I am? I think we would probably give very much the same answer. Well, Lord, everyone down at Laps Restaurant thinks you're absolutely terrific. The, the, the parents of the other kids on the soccer team, the gang down at the office, they think you're a great teacher. In fact, they think you're the greatest humanitarian that has ever lived. Well, just so you know, the early church also struggled to understand the complex mystery of how do we articulate this idea of Jesus being both human and divine. In fact, there's a group of people that got together and said, well, Jesus was a very fine man. In fact, they said he, he was an exalted man, maybe even an exalted angel. Or that Jesus was this subordinate deity, sort of like vice president in charge of operations for the entire world. Their thinking was that Jesus was of a different substance from that of God the Father. Now, hang with me. He was, in the Greek, heterousius from the Father. There was another group of people who said, oh, that, that heterousius, that kind of, that kind of sounds negative. Let, let's say that Jesus was of a similar substance to that of the Father. Let's say he was homoousius of the Father. So they had this great convention in the city of Nicaea, which today is modern-day Turkey, and this is back in 325 A.D., to try to figure out and finalize what it would be. Would it be heterousius? They said, no. Would it be homoousius? They said, no. And what they concluded was that Jesus is of the same substance as that of God the Father. And we have this phrase, which we have said many times here from the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one or same substance, homoousius with the Father, which means worthy of the adoration of the shepherds and the wise men like we celebrate at Christmas, worthy of the martyred death of the apostles, worthy of our being here today and singing hymns and songs in praise to his holy name. I love what the great Christian writer C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, I want to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people say about Christ, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And that is the one thing that C.S. Lewis says we must not say. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to say, a man who is merely a man and says the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell itself. You make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or also a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. So when we say that I believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, what we're really saying is that Jesus was the autobiography of God in human flesh and blood. Apostle Paul said it this way in Colossians. 
He is the visible image of the invisible God in the flesh. You know, when we look around us at people's lives and how they've been torn apart, whether it's from tornadoes like folks down in Kentucky and some of those other states, or folks who have suffered from COVID-related illnesses or have had families suffer from it and even death, or the current situation of people being attacked in Ukraine, their needs are obvious and, and they are overwhelming. Because when you walk amidst the rubble of, of demolished cars and, 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 and ruined furniture and flattened houses, or when you walk by the hospital beds of people who are in ventilators wondering if this day may be their last, or when you see tanks with big guns coming up the street in which you live, you really have no place to hide, do you? But you know, when we come to church on Sunday, there are so many places in which we can hide. We can hide behind our reputations, our status, our possessions, our polite smiles, our comfortable distances. And yet if we're honest, and really honest, we are helpless until we find our help in Jesus Christ. Friends, this man Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and as the Son of God, he still has the power to change lives today. His presence, his mere presence, can calm our fears. His compassion can heal our hurts. His wisdom can guide us through all the complexities of our lives, and his power can give us the strength to face each and every day head on. We can believe that this is all true. Why? Because Jesus said so himself. For this season of Lent, I am preaching a sermon series on the I am statements of Jesus. Love the anthem that the choir did this morning. Perfect fit for our service. Wonderful. Most of those I am statements of Jesus come in John's gospel. And as Jesus is sort of having this sparring debate verbally with the Jews, he tells them in John 8:58, you heard it read earlier, before Abraham was, I am. What's Jesus doing there? I think what he's doing is he's pushing all his chips to the middle of the table and not leaving any room for debate about who he is claiming to be. And he kind of stirs up the crowd a bit by telling them that, that they are enslaved to sin, but only in following him will they know the truth and then be set free by it. And of course, as you might imagine, that goes over like a lead balloon because the crowd there insists that they are descendants of Abraham and they aren't slaves of anybody. After all, God established his covenant to bless Abraham and his offspring and it is through the seed of Abraham that all the world shall be blessed. And so the Jews insist that as children of Abraham, they have not been and are not slaves, but are free. They're the chosen ones. They're the heirs of the covenant. They had this special connection to God. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants them to understand that regardless of their relationship with Abraham, regardless of the, the covenant that he established uh, with him, they're, they're sinners, just like all the rest of us and everyone who sins thus becomes a slave to sin 
and must be set free by a power that is beyond themselves. This setting here in John chapter 8 takes place on the heels of what is known as the Feast of the Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of the Booths. It's this week-long Jewish holiday that celebrates God's provision for the Israelites as they left Israel and were wandering in the wilderness. And so to commemorate this event, this Jewish holiday, the people of Israel were commanded to build little huts or booths and then live in them. Listen to what it says in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So this conversation that Jesus has with the uh, Jews takes place in the immediate aftermath of this strange feast where people are supposed to live in little huts. I'm seeing a lot of strange looks on your faces because you may be wondering, what in the world does all of this mean? Well, it's not just that God wanted them to remember having to live in those temporary huts for the 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness. It's what those little shelters, those little huts came to symbolize. One scholar wrote this, living in temporary housing for eight days was an experiential reminder that for a time, as the the Israelites didn't have their houses and fields and vineyards, they were homeless, hapless, and helpless. What they did have was God. He was their one constant, and he was completely sufficient. And so the Feast of the Tabernacles is all about God being all-sufficient and meeting people in their time of need. And I think what Jesus here is doing in our story today is directly challenging the people who are attempting to find sufficiency in something else besides God. And for the Jewish people in Jesus' day, it was in their heritage, in their heritage as Abraham's descendants. Being one of Abraham's descendants uh, descendants was sort of like an insurance policy for them. They thought that it gave them the inside track to God. But Jesus says it doesn't work like that. And rather what he does is he points to himself. He tells them, and you and me here today, that our complete sufficiency is only found in him. Jesus says this, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He adds, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then comes the coup de grace. Jesus makes the biggest claim of all. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And what makes this such a huge claim is that Jesus is telling us about himself. He's claiming the divine name in this clear and unmistakable way. Well, as you heard the story, the Jews understand instantly what he means. That's why they they pick up stones to throw at him. They're ready to execute him for blasphemy, for claiming to believe what they say no man should be able to claim. Reminds me of the story about uh, Christian Herder, who was the governor of Massachusetts back in the 1950s. 
And one day Christian Herder was out campaigning, this was for a second term, and he was scheduled to appear at a church late in the afternoon, and the church was having a barbecue. And it had been a busy day, Christian Herder had been campaigning, he had missed lunch, and he was really hungry. Well, when he got to the barbecue at the church, he stepped in line, he held out his plate to a woman serving chicken. And she put a piece on his plate, then turned to the next person in line, but Governor Herder stood there. And he interrupted her, he said, excuse me, but do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? And the woman told him, I'm sorry, but I'm only supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. The governor said, but, but I'm starved. The woman said, I'm sorry, only one per customer. Well, even though Christian Herder was normally a very mild and, and modest man, this time he decided to throw his weight around. He said, do you know who I am? I am the governor of this state. And that woman looked right back at him and said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. <laughs> now move along, mister. There was no misunderstanding, no mistaking who this lady was, and there's no mistaking and misunderstanding about who Jesus is. Before Abraham was, I am. And the truth of who he is makes all those other claims true. And we're going to find that out over the next several weeks as we move through this season of Lent. He is the light of the world. He is the good shepherd. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the bread of life. He is the gate. He is the true vine. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You see, if Jesus isn't the great I am, then he isn't any of the other things that he claims to be either. But friends, I'm here to tell you he is. And Jesus claims about who he is and what he did is the truth that will set us free and transform us from slaves into sons and daughters of the living God. Would you join me in prayer? Let us pray. Lord God, we pause in these moments really trembling as we stand on the threshold of this mystery of the person of Jesus Christ, especially since we know you continue for us to, to consider that question of who you are. As we ponder your claim as the great I am. May our response come not just from our lips, but from our lives. And may we rest in the confidence that you are who you say you are. And we pray these things in the incomparable name and power of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen and amen.